Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles this morning. Acts chapter number 4. And we're going to be in verse 32 down through verse number 37. And I was asked some time back to bring a message uh, that would fit in line with what's going on in the world today. And uh, many of you know I have a preaching calendar and I spend a lot of time preparing that and planning that and praying over that. And I have found that over and over again the sermons that I have prepared have been timely uh, for an ongoing situation in the church or even in the culture at large. And so, um, oddly enough, when I put the preaching calendar together last November, December, I left this Sunday open and I just wrote Flex Week in there. And uh, come, come to find out, God knew that uh, this sermon right here would need to be preached today. And at times I do vary from that preaching calendar, but very rarely do I do that. In fact, this is the first time I have I have varied from the preaching calendar since all of this has started. But Acts chapter 4, I I hope and pray that the sermon today will challenge you. Uh, I hope today that the sermon today, uh, I hope and pray that the sermon will help challenge your thinking uh, within the culture at large. Um, I'm going to touch a little bit on politics. I'm not going to side with a party, but I am going to touch a little bit on politics and just our social structure as a country and how we go about taking care of the poor and how that lines up with Scripture. Now, as a pastor, uh, I have been at this here for almost four years. The end of June will be four years, so we're approaching four years of my pastorate here, and I have not preached on politics much, if at all. And I'm uh, going to, when I do talk about politics, we talk about it from a biblical worldview. And we're going to do that today as well. And I believe the sermon today will challenge your thinking. Uh, Whether you label yourself a Republican or a Democrat, it will challenge your thinking uh, lined up against the Bible. I want to say this first. Before I am a citizen of the United States of America, I am a citizen of heaven. And my thinking needs to be first in line with the Bible before it is in line with American ideology or a political party. And so uh, let's weigh heavily what the scriptures say this morning. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 32 down through verse 37. The Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. Look here. For as many as were possessors of land and houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The title of my sermon this morning is this, God's Call for Liberal Christians. God's Call for Liberal Christians. There are some people listening in today that think those two words do not belong together, liberal and Christian. I'm going to show you today in Scripture where they do belong together. Let's pray this morning. Help us, Lord, as we consider the Scriptures And, Lord, your original intent with the Scriptures in the church, uh, Lord, to uh, set aside our our, uh, preconceived ideas and our own belief system uh, 
And Lord, where our, our mindsets and thoughts and ideologies are in contradiction with Scripture, help us not to argue with Scripture, but Lord, to adjust, to come in line with, and to trust that your way is best. Lord, help us today to understand that your way is best and that, Lord, we can only follow, we, we will only succeed if we follow your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I'm putting a sermon together, I try and find a clever title that will draw in the listener uh, uh, to the message. Of all the titles that I uh, that the Lord has given me, that I've come up with, the Lord has given me, and I do pray over even the title, uh, how I should title a sermon. This one is it has to be one of my favorites. God's call for liberal. Christians. Now, I want to make sure I, uh, I say all this up front. I did grow up in a Republican family. Let me just add quickly, I do not consider myself a Republican today. I consider myself a conservative independent, a conservative uh, independent. And we have in our country a two-party political system. And those two parties oftentimes act like sports teams that are bitter Rivals. They hate each other. Um, if you don't believe me, turn on a cable news channel. Pick your cable news channel that you want to turn on, and you'll find that uh, they hate each other. The, so who are the two political parties? Well, unless you've been living under a rock uh, or you've been asleep for the last 50, 60, 70, 150 years, however long it's been, uh, you know who they are. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's the conservatives versus the liberals. It's red versus blue. It's elephant versus donkey. You see what I mean when it comes to sports teams? We've even picked mascots and we have team colors and uh, we have a team name and we have team headquarters and it's this team versus this team. As a young man, the last thing I wanted to be was a liberal. That was the last thing I wanted to be as a young man. Again, I grew up in a Republican household. I grew up, and I still to this day consider myself a conservative. And if you called me a liberal, that was almost like cussing at me and or putting me down. Uh, I'm a I'm no I'm a liberal. In fact, uh, I grew up in in uh, around people who before they used the word liberal would put the word stinking and they would say you're a stinking liberal. And it was it was a put down to call someone a liberal. And and I I'm going to say this morning that God has called Christians to be liberal Christians, liberal Christians. And um uh now I don't mean political liberals. I mean spiritual liberals, spiritual liberals. Now, let me just say uh, right here that if you consider yourself a Democrat, uh, if you consider yourself a political liberal, if you consider yourself on Team Donkey, and I always get the colors mixed up. In fact, I had to look it up here. Red and blue, I can't keep it straight. I guess it's blue. Did I get that right? Democrats are blue? All right. So if I'm wrong, then all of them are wrong, too, because they're all telling me that that's correct. If you consider yourself one of those, listen, I love you. I don't, I, I don't hate you. Uh, I think this is a sidebar. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to say this right here. I, I think it's super unhealthy for us to allow the media to pit us against each other. Americans need to come together now more than ever. And if you're listening in today and you're a hardcore Democrat or a hardcore Republican, can I tell you that the people on the other side of the political aisle are human beings with a soul? 
And you need to care for them. They may be ideologically opposed to you, but God loves them and God loves you. And uh, we need to sit and listen to each other and we need to love each other and we need to quit going at war with each other. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 25 says this about being a spiritual liberal. It says, the liberal soul shall be made fat and he that uh, uh, watereth shall be watered also himself. Now, that idea of being made fat is being made prosperous. All right. Uh, You look at someone who is large in size and some of some of those people were born with uh, a genetic disorder and they no matter what they eat, they're going to be large. But then you have people like me. I find the more I eat, the larger my waistline expands. And uh, I am gaining weight because I have plenty to eat and I am prosperous. And uh, I um, uh, in fact, if you go back several hundred years, what you find is that the good looking people in society were considered Plump or plush. Why? Because it was a sign of wealth. The liberal soul, those who give away, those who give of what they have shall be made prosperous. The idea of being liberal carries with it the concept of being generous with what God has given you by giving it to others. You take what God has given you and instead of hoarding it, instead of sitting on it, you share it with others. Others. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, words it this way Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give unto your, into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet, or give out, with all it shall be measured to you again. What is the best investment plan for a Christian? The best investment plan for a Christian is to give away that which you have. Now, when I was a little boy, I thought if I gave the Lord $20, that meant I would get back $40. And I remember listening to preaching as a just seven, eight-year-old boy sitting in church. And I remember thinking, oh, man, it was a missions conference, I believe. And we had a gentleman by the name of Gary Edwards. He was sitting over on the other side of the auditorium from me. And, and, and testimonies were asked for him. Brother Gary stood up and he said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, uh, I made this faith promise commitment to missions. And, and I, I, it was bigger than I thought I could handle. But it was what the Lord was leading me to do. And he said, I was out fishing one day. And I didn't know how I was going to uh, uh, give it. Uh, you know, it was due at the end of the month uh, to be uh, faithful to the Lord and keep my promise. And he said, uh, I just didn't have the money in the bank. And I threw my hook in the water and I pulled out this prize bass. It was the largest bass that had been caught in the county. And I won a reward for it. And the money I won, I was able to tithe off of it. And I was able to give the rest to missions. And I kept my commitment, I thought. I am going to take the $20 I earn from cutting grass and I'm going to give it to the Lord and I'm going to get $40 back, maybe $60 back. And I remember I put that in the plate and I had all the faith in the Lord that I was going to get more back. You know, I was giving it in a greedy way. I was not giving it uh, just to give it. I was giving it so that I could heap upon my own lust. Can I tell you what? God does not always return your giving, your monetary giving, in monetary ways. It could be that you were going to get in a car accident and because you gave to the Lord, all of a sudden he sent an angel down to help you avoid that accident. 
It could have been that you were going to have a major life-altering health issue. And because you were faithful in giving to the Lord, all of a sudden that was, uh, that was diverted or avoided. Can I tell you that we don't always see how God works, but we know that if we give to the Lord, the Lord always gives back to us. That's where that phrase, you cannot outgive God, comes from. During these uncertain times, our flesh desires uh, to conserve what we have for the worst-case scenarios. And if you listen to economists right now, boy, they are predicting doomsday. They are predicting that uh, we're going to have deflation followed up by inflation, and uh, it's going to get ugly, and we're going to be upside down in our houses, and 2008 all over again, and then some, and uh, it's going to get ugly. And so what what is our our inclination? Our inclination is to take what we have and conserve and protect and guard our own best interests, but that is seated in an attitude of, I must take care of me because I don't trust God to take care of me. In the message this morning, we're going to look back at the first church in Jerusalem. And we're going to see how the church became the hub of the wheel to take care of the poor. The church became the hub of the wheel to take care of those who were, who were doing without, who had to do without. So let's jump into Acts chapter 4 and let's see this idea of a liberal generous Christian. I have uh, four main thoughts this morning, and we're going to let the Bible uh, lay out the outline for us here. And so uh, before you can be a specific type of Christian, conservative or liberal Christian, uh, let me just say you must first be a Christian. Now, we um, one of the uh, pros of our live stream is that we're reaching into homes of people we just don't know. And some of you have been commenting in our live chat there and Uh, Pastor Morales has his phone out and he's interacting with some of you uh, during uh, the service. And so while Miss Bernice was singing, I was sitting next to him and we were going through and looking at the names. And there are names in there that I don't know, that he does not know. And so uh, maybe you've uh, uh, participated in the chat. Maybe you haven't. Listen, uh, our messages are now being watched all around the, the globe, all around the world. And if you're listening in today... Can I tell you that before you can be any type of Christian, you must first be a Christian. You must first be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note point number one of the message this morning is this. It's salvation. It's salvation. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice letter A, the unity of the people. Go back with me to Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 32. The Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed, that believed, were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them uh, that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, all things common. Notice that before they could have all things common, they first had to be a group of people that believed. Do you know that salvation is an act of faith? It's an act of faith. It's not an act of works. It's an act of faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace... Are ye saved through faith? That is a mathematical formula laid out in Scripture for salvation. Now, before I give you the mathematical formula, let me just lay out in plain terms what salvation is. You think of salvation as a salvaging, a rescuing, a rescue effort. If uh, my family and your family were out in a body of water 
and I fell out of my boat and I didn't have a life vest on and I didn't know how to swim and I was bobbing up and down in the water and and I called out to you and I said, save me, rescue me. And let's say you had a life raft there in your boat, a lifesaver in your boat. And you, you toss that out to me on a rope and I were to grab hold of that and you were to pull me back into the boat and, uh, and help me into your boat, you would have salvaged my life. You would have rescued me from the peril of drowning. And can I tell you, if you're listening in this morning, can I tell you that we're all born drowning in our own sin. And you're not going to be able to get out of your own sin through good works. There's one way out. And before we can talk about you being saved, you first need to admit that you need to be saved. You can't be rescued until you admit that you're in peril. So how, do, how does this work? Again, for by grace are ye saved through faith. Here's the mathematical formula. Grace plus faith equals saved. Notice that works does not fit into the equation. Your good behavior does not fit. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that uh, you are born with a puzzle slid in front of you that remains there your whole life. And that puzzle is a two-piece puzzle set. One of those two pieces is pre-glued to the board. That first piece that's glued to the board is the puzzle piece of grace. God provided that grace when Jesus Christ came to earth, God becoming man, he lived a perfect life, and he died a substitutionary death, meaning he died for you, he took your place on the cross. God had every right to throw you into a pit of hell for your sin, because God hates sin. Uh, Think of it this way, hell is prison for uh, you and I, for the sins we have committed. And so God looked down on you and I, and he wanted to pardon us of the crimes of our sin. He wanted to acquit us. He wanted to expunge uh, those wrongdoings, those sins, off of our eternal record. And so God sent Jesus to the earth to suffer hell for us. And so that puzzle piece of grace is pre-glued to the board, and that puzzle is slid in front of you, and there's only one other piece that fits. And you must, at some point between your date of birth and your date of death, take that other puzzle piece and interlock it. Now, a lot of people try to interlock works into grace, and what they find is that that puzzle piece just doesn't fit. Now, please be clear that if you die and that puzzle's not complete, you will go to hell. God extended that grace for you. He's looking for you to take the puzzle piece of faith, reliance, trust, and interlock that into his grace. That completes the puzzle of salvation. When I was four years old, I understood this truth explained to me on a childhood level. What did I do as a four-year-old boy? I bowed my head and I admitted to God in heaven that I was a sinner. I thanked him that Jesus had died in my place. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to take my sins away and save me, to rescue me. What did I do? I called out to him and I said, throw me the lifeline of salvation. Pull me out of my own sin where I'll drown and rescue me. Christ, I trust you. If there's never been that moment where you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then my friend, you're not a Christian. You're not a child of God. 
You must do that. Look back with me at Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them that believe. There's the faith being interlocked in that grace. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Look here what happens when we believe. If we're truly saved, if we're following God's plan after we're saved, there is a oneness of heart. There is a oneness of soul. Neither said any of them that ought uh, of the things that he uh, possessed was his own, but they had all things common, all things common. Before they could take care of each other's needs, they had to be in unity. They had, uh, before they could be in unity, they had to like each other. Before they could like each other, they had to genuinely love each other with a deferential, preferential love. Please hear this quote. You cannot give without loving. Uh, rather, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. When I learn to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord, what I find in my loving them is that I cannot help but give toward their needs. We see the unity of the people. Let her be noticed the power of the preachers. Look at chapter uh, 4 and verse 33. The Bible says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power. With great power. Have you stopped to consider why their preaching was so powerful? Notice the formula at play here. Uh, First, for preaching to be powerful, the preacher needs to be spirit-led. The preacher needs to be spirit-led. If you have a preacher get up and he's walking in the power of his flesh, he's preaching a fleshly sermon, he's getting up and venting, he's getting up and blowing off uh, smoke or steam, and he's just up there uh, 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 ranting and raving about whatever he's passionate about and doesn't have the Scripture to back him, doesn't have the Spirit of God speaking through him, then that sermon will lack the power of God. So the first part of the formula is that you need uh, preachers that are spirit-led. Then you need their, their sermons were passionately preached. Their sermons were passionately preached. What uh, Peter and Paul and John and James and all the apostles, they got up and they preached like they meant it. I hope that when you tune in to White Oak Baptist Church's live stream and you listening to the, listen to the preaching of God's Word, you walk away with one thing, and that's this. The people who preach at that church, they're passionate about what they preach. They mean what they preach. They care about what they preach. It's not just some ideology. It's not just some uh, higher, loftier thinking. No, it's something that has affected them down to the very nature of who they are. They preach with passion. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has changed their lives. The power of the preachers. Have you stopped to consider that that's not the entire formula? Well, Well, pastor, it says that with great power... Gave the apostles witness. Great power. So that means the apostles were filled with God's power. Yes, but please understand that's only half the formula. I could take you into the Old Testament and I could show you Old Testament prophets who were filled with God's spirit and preached with passion. Can I tell you that their sermons went over like a lead balloon? They had these elements, but their sermons landed on deaf ears. Boy, I really hope you get this here. Not only does the preacher need to be spirit-filled, so does the listener. I have, uh, I have stood in this pulpit dozens of times, hundreds of times, prayed up, 
prepared, studied, dripping with passion, in line with the Spirit of God. And I've preached sermons that have greatly moved some people's hearts. And I've watched other people yawn and sleep through a message. Other people sit there bored to tears. I've had one person get on their knees at the altar and weep after a sermon I've preached. And then had another person either to my face or behind my back criticize my message. Boy, how could a sermon so greatly affect one life and someone else it it have no effect on whatsoever? Can I tell you the difference? One listener came ready to hear and the other one didn't. I hope if one thing that this virus is doing is it's waking you up to the need to be a spirit-filled listener. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. We, we mentioned this in our uh, life group hour. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You know, a lot of churches are doing away with pulpits. They have a lectern, maybe a table. Maybe they just have a stool that the preacher sits on. And you think, well, why would they get rid of the pulpit? And I would say this, if you're not going to preach, you don't need a pulpit. Where there is no pulpit, there probably is no preaching. Hey, listen, let's never get away from Bible preaching. I enjoy the discussion time with Pastor Morales, and there's a place for that, but that should never replace the preaching of God's Word. We need the preaching of God's Word to step on our toes, to wake us up. And if you're tuning in today, and you're listening, and you're kind of just half paying attention, or you're doing other things uh, while the Bible sermon's going on, or your mind is wandering, and uh, you're running here, you're running there mentally, can I tell you that God's Word will never have the power in your life until you as a listener tune your heart in. Boy, Jesus preached with great power and the sermons went right over heads. But these apostles who were much less filled with the Spirit preached and sermons landed hard. The difference was the listener. Letter C, we see the grace they possessed. Look back at verse number 33. The Bible says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace... Great grace was upon them all. Where did this spirit of grace come from? Well, they had learned it directly from Jesus himself. You remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Jesus writes in the sand. And when he's pressed to have her stoned, Jesus looks at the men and says, He that is without sin cast the first stone. He bends back down to write in the Sand, when he looks back up, all of her accusers are gone. Jesus looked at her and said, Woman, where where are thine accusers? And then he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know what Jesus did for this woman caught in adultery? He showed her grace. How about the woman at the well who had been married five times and was in a uh, a sinful uh, relationship with another man, a live-in? Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't stand there and condemn the woman to hell. No, he showed her grace. He offered her the living water. How about the man by the pool of Bethesda who was lame and couldn't walk? Boy, Jesus didn't just say, your turn's coming to get in the pool. No, he reached down and he made him whole. How about blind Bartimaeus who called him out on his way into Jerusalem? Jesus stopped everybody 
and he gave Bartimaeus his sight. But maybe the example of God's grace that mostly touched the heart of these apostles, these disciples of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified, how they all went into hiding? Do you remember how Peter denied the Lord? Three times he denied the Lord. Jesus made eye contact with Peter on his way out of that mock trial. The Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Even after Peter had seen the resurrected Jesus, do you know what he did? He quit. He quit. And when he quit, he took the other disciples with him. You know, Jesus had invested three and a half years into these men. And Jesus could have said, what a waste of time. You know what? There are enough tender hearts around the Jerusalem area. I'm done with these guys. I'm going to recruit others to lead the charge. But that's not what Jesus did. Peter and his buddies are out in the boat fishing. Peter was either half naked or altogether naked. He was backslidden. He was carnal. Jesus, he, he prepares a campfire. He cooks some fish. And he calls out to the disciples. Peter swims to shore and Jesus feeds them. Did Jesus condemn the disciples for quitting? No, he showed them grace. I hope you're listening to me this morning. I hope I'm not boring you. Jesus looked at Peter in the eye and he said, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. Jesus said, Then go feed my sheep. Then Jesus looked back at Peter a second time. He said, Peter, lovest thou me? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Then a third time, Jesus must have looked at Peter with a tear in his eye. In a spirit of grace in his heart. And he said, Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? The Bible says that Peter was grieved because Jesus had to ask him three times. You see, Peter denied Jesus three times and God affirmed Peter three times. Well, never once did God come down hard on Peter for denying him. Never once did God come down hard on Peter uh, for quitting Instead, God showed, Jesus Christ showed grace to his disciples. Now, here in Acts 4, verse 33, we find that there was great grace upon them. They possessed great grace. Where did they get this grace to show to each other? They had experienced it from God. Christian, I look at other people who claim to be saved. And I see how hard-hearted they are. How rigid they are. How strict they are. And I just want to ask you this. Aren't you glad God's not rigid and strict with you? Aren't you glad God doesn't throw the book at you every time you mess up? You know, there are people that walk all over us sometimes. There are people that take advantage of us. There are people that hurt us. There are people that don't behave the way we wish they would behave. It's time to show grace. 
if you've experienced God's grace in your life, isn't it time for you to show them grace? These disciples did not look down on the poor. These disciples lifted up the poor. These disciples didn't say, well, if you worked harder. Well, if you were smarter with your money, well, if you uh, uh, were were uh, were uh, uh, if you, if you had any sort of financial principles that you lived by, uh, then maybe you wouldn't have gotten yourself in this spot. No, they came alongside with grace, and, and and they loved on each other, and they helped each other out. You see what the gospel does. You see how it radically transforms us. It brings us into unity. It brings power to preaching. It it it, it brings grace in our heart. Toward each other. Number one, salvation. The church was growing strong, but that doesn't mean that everything was easy. Notice number two, struggles. Struggles. Letter A, notice some were persecuted. Look at Acts chapter 4 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. What was going on here? Uh, they were preaching the, the resurrected Christ. And boy, people were being saved in droves. 3,000 saved at Pentecost. We'll see in Acts chapter 5 in a few moments that 5,000 were saved uh, uh, just a little bit later. And, and, and they had just healed a man outside of Solomon's temple, uh, outside of the temple there. And uh, they were seeing great things happening. And, and what happened? The, 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 the spiritual council, rather the religious council, the Sadducees, the scribes, they came in and they had them arrested and put in jail. Boy, great persecution would be rained down upon them because of the stand they took for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. The Bible says, And to them they agreed, uh, and to him rather, they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed. This is the disciples, the apostles. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Boy, someone calls us an ugly name when we give them a track and we feel like a victim. These men were beaten. They were flogged. Uh, they were, they were whipped for their faith and they walked away with wounds in their back and they were praising God that they had the chance to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Now, the persecution of the church in Jerusalem would grow so intense that the apostle James would be arrested and then beheaded and then Peter would be arrested and through a series of miracles, he would be let out of prison. In fact, there's a story here in the beginning of Acts where they were all arrested and the angel came and let them out of prison. Uh, but nonetheless, some of them would be killed and persecuted and and, and, and and would suffer martyrdom. Deacon Stephen, I believe it's Acts 6 and 7, he was martyred for his boldness. He was stoned to death. Some were persecuted. You say, well, look, it's easy to show grace on people uh, when times are going good and people are behaving the way they want. And it's easy to be in unity when everything's hunky-dory. And it's easy to have my heart move to preaching when everything in my life is going great. Pastor, I come into church. I just got a raise. I just bought a new home. I just got an upgrade in technology. And I sit in the pew. And boy, the blessings of God have been rained down upon me. Pastor, preach away. But can you have that spirit during times of persecution? Boy, we see the struggles. 
It wasn't easy for this church. But instead of the struggle, instead of the persecution splintering them, it was bringing them together. Letter A, some were persecuted. Letter B, notice, some were poor. Some were poor. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 35. The Bible says, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution, notice here, distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Distribution was made. Now, up earlier we saw that they had all things common. Here we see distribution being made. Within the church body, there were those who could not cover their bills. They could not provide for even their basic necessities. Their stand for Christ made that even tougher as it limited where they could work and who would hire them. Jesus promised us in John chapter 12 verse 8 that we would always have the poor among us. Remember John 12 8 says, For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Now we've had politicians declare war on poverty and promise to eradicate it from the earth, do you know that will never be done? That will never be done. Uh, No matter how great, uh, no matter what political system or rather financial system we install in America, whether it's capitalism or socialism or communism, or if you can find some hybrid of one of the two or one of the three, uh, you will never be able to eradicate poor people from off the earth. Now, I want to just make sure I insert this right here. You need to understand this. Your attitude toward the poor Christian matters. It matters greatly. Can I say that as a young man, as a teenager, as a young adult, I'd see someone begging for food or begging for money, and I'd think, go get a job, you scumbag. Can I tell you, that was about as anti-Bible and anti-Spirit of Christ as I could have had. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should just hand a $20 bill out the window to every hobo you see. But I am saying your heart should break. I am saying that you should look at the poor with love and compassion. Not a hateful, condescending spirit. Boy, that is not the attitude of Christ to have a condescending spirit. From this passage, we see that Christians are saved. From this passage, we see that Christians have struggle. Next, we see that God has a, number three, has a system. Has a system. Look back at Acts chapter 4 and verse 34. The Bible says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. Look there. This is speaking of the church. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, the conservative worldview versus the liberal worldview. Which approach should a Christian take toward his brother or sister in need? Should we take the conservative worldview or should we take the liberal worldview? Jesus has commanded us. He has ordered us to be generous or liberal toward the poor. 
Uh, listen to what Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 say. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. What is it saying here? It's saying when you have a feast, don't just invite the VIPs. Fill your feast with those who can give you nothing back. Fill your feast with people who will never be able to compensate your acts of kindness. Fill your feast knowing that they will never ever be able to do things in return for you. Now, from a practical standpoint, you ought to give money away sometimes and expect it never to be returned. Well, I don't give money away. I will say this. I don't personally loan money. I don't. I don't have the church loan money. Um, if we can't give it, then we don't. I, I'm not going to say, uh, okay, brother, here's a hundred bucks to help you during a tough time, but I expect that hundred bucks back within a month. Oh no. I'm going to give it to you. And if I can't afford to give it to you, then I'm not going to give it to you. Why? Because I am not to look to gain back. I am look to help others in their hardships and expect God to reward me when I get to heaven. Can I tell you that this isn't just what Jesus preached, it's what he lived. Let me help you understand it this way. Jesus was king of, of everything. King Jesus, sitting on a throne in heaven, perfect, high and lifted up, uh, 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 angels and creatures that were created for the purpose of worshiping him, in his presence, worshiping him all the time. And what did Jesus do? He left the loftiest seat you could sit on, and he was born to the poorest family imaginable. His birth was not announced to the elite. It was announced to poor shepherds. Jesus did not grow up in some rich suburb, some ruling class home. No, in fact, Nathaniel would say, what good thing can come from Nazareth? He grew up in a poor town. So, born to a poor family, and his birth was announced to poor shepherds. He grew up in a poor town. Uh, he surrounded himself with poor people. Hear me out on this. God, the richest being in existence, gave up his only begotten son to help the poorest of poor. This is God's system. Aren't you glad God was not stingy with your poor, lost soul? Christian, you are called to follow in God's footsteps. Okay, pastor, lay it out for us. How do we help the poor? Deuteronomy 15.7 says this. If there be any... If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Within the New Testament, within the New Testament, God's plan to help the poor was never meant to be the government. It was meant to be the church. We live in a country where the government has robbed away from the church its ability to help the poor. What do I mean? I believe our government may be intended well in the beginning. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But we live in a country where our government somehow thinks that it can take a tax 
from the people and then turn around and help the poorest amongst us. The problem is some bureaucrat sitting in Washington does not know the specific needs of somebody sitting on the other side of the country. And so a check is sent each month and they take that check and they're able to maybe pay their rent or they get food stamps and they're able to go uh, and get that food. And again, the outcome in many cases is positive, but it is not biblical. It is not biblical. God's intent was for the local New Testament church in the neighborhoods of, 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 a, of a people, of a country, to be the center of the hub where both giving is done and getting is done. Where you go and you get your needs met. And so uh, God's plan here is for that to be the church. Now, uh, what has happened? What has happened? And here's where, where we really get into the weeds of, of a conservative political view versus a liberal political view. Government is not God. And that's the problem with much of our political system today. People look at the government to tell them how to live, what to do, uh, where to go, how to bail them out of a tough spot. I want to make this really clear. The government is to be of the people, by the people, and for the people. The government, uh, governmental officials get their power from us. They don't get power to tell us what to do. They get power from us. And we have the right by the Declaration of Independence to alter or abolish if it ever gets out of line. And my friend, the government is not meant to lord down on us. No, the government is simply meant to represent us as a people. So how does this work? Boy, God's intent was for you and I to give benevolently benevolently to the church and for the leadership of the church to then turn around and help meet the needs of the poor. Let me give you a scenario here. Joey, and again, I'm just picking a name out of a hat, uh, a a brain hat. Joey is um, struggling to meet his needs. Joey has lost his job and Uh, Joey's having a hard time providing for his family. So Joey files for welfare and Joey files for food stamps. And he gets a check in the mail from the government. He gets food stamps from the government. And Joey becomes dependent upon the government for much of the rest of his life. And he becomes entitled to that check. He becomes expecting of those government subsidies to help him get through. Joey will never, ever, ever be able to get out of a low-class lifestyle as long as he remains dependent on Uncle Sam to give him his handout. Now, how is Joey getting that money? Money is being taken from a taxpayer into the government's pockets and then passed along to Joey. I want you to I want us to imagine rather a different scenario. The government now instead charges less tax. The people who are making the money now have more money in their pocket and are now able to give to a charitable local church. That church instead takes the same money that the government would have had, and he is that church is now able to have a beefed-up benevolent fund that's just simply meant to help meet Joey's needs. Joey walks in the door of the church. Joey sits down with someone on the pastoral staff. Joey explains the hardships that he has experienced, and Joey is then able to get financial relief through his hard time, and through the teaching of biblical principles of a man, not uh, if a man shall not work, neither should he eat, from a teaching of biblical principles of, of morality and lifestyle, those pastors are able to help get him or her, uh, depending on the person, back on their feet. And Joey is not only given fish, Joey is then taught how to fish 
through the local church. He is taught that through biblical principles. And what happens is that Joey is not going to need to be dependent on a benevolent fund forever, but only for a short time. Our government has stepped in and taken away the church's ability on a lot of levels to be able to help. God's system in Acts 4 was that believers had all things common. That believers provided for the distribution of those who, who would do without. There was not a prejudice toward the poor. Rather, there was compassion toward the poor. Now, I don't think that through one sermon preached, I'm going to be able to convince the government to quit collecting as much taxes as they are. I don't believe we're going to be able to fix the, uh, fix the, the, the problem with one sermon. But here's what I am suggesting. Right now we're going through hard times. Many of you have had your finances affected or will have your finances affected. Others of you have a job that's secure and solid. And there doesn't seem to be any shortage of funds coming your way anytime soon. Many of us have gotten a check from our federal government. $3,400 was deposited in my bank account. And I can share that number with you because anyone who knows the system could have figured that out on their own. That $3,400 I was not looking for or expecting. Uh, it is bonus money. I uh, have, uh, Angel and I have taken $340 out of that money, and uh, we have put that in the offering plate as a tithe of, of, of that money. And then my wife and I discussed how much we could give toward the church's benevolent fund. You may be here today listening in, and you are, uh, you have, God has blessed you, and you have an abundance of funds. I would like for you to consider following the example laid in Acts 4, that you would give, uh, uh, give uh, sacrificially, give of your abundance, and mark that money in benevolence so that our church's benevolence fund could be built up. And if you're listening in today and you've had your finances adversely affected by this crisis and you would uh, like the church to help you, we'll keep this confidential. We'll not run around and tell everyone who it is that's being helped. But uh, contact myself, contact one of our deacons, and myself and our deacon board would, would be happy to sit down and figure out who it is we can help. We would like to be able to follow the example in Acts 4 through this pandemic. To be very clear on this, I would ask that you follow the example of tithing, giving an offering to the church's general fund off of the stimulus money you've received. I would also like to ask those of you that have plenty to consider giving a little bit more of that to our church's benevolent fund so that we can help out our own. That is God's system. That is God's system. It is not only God's system that we bear each other's financial burdens but that we bear each other's hurts and needs. Others are sick. Others are struggling. Would you consider helping and praying and, and, and gathering a burden and, 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 and taking those to the Lord in prayer? We've looked at salvation. We've looked at struggle. We've looked at system. And number four, and lastly, let's consider sharing. Sharing. Go back with me to Acts chapter 4 and look at verse 36. The Bible says in Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Boy, Joseph became the hero of the church. Uh, uh, and, and he didn't become a hero because he wanted the attention. 
But the Lord so moved in Joseph's heart to give that he had an extra property that he didn't need and he sold it and he took the entire amount of money he got and he laid it at the apostles' feet and he said to redistribute that amongst the poor. Now, the difference between political socialism and this social construct is that socialism forces me to give my money to take care of the poor, whereas this was all voluntary. These people were not forced. But notice what Barnabas, notice what Joseph, what happened to Jonas. The apostles looked at this guy and they changed his name. They gave him a nickname. They named him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of consolation or son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. Let me finish with this. The term communism. Did you know that communism is what is heaven? There will be communism enjoyed in heaven. You say, communism's bad. Well, communism on earth is impossible to achieve. Communism on earth has never been achieved. Uh, China claims to be communist. Cuba claims to be communist, but they're not. Communism is achieved when everyone agrees to and buys into the idea of sharing what they have with everyone around them and there not being any need or any monetary system whatsoever. And there is no need to even have a government because everyone just voluntarily gives to each other's common good. Socialism is when you use a police state to force people to share their goods. And that is, that is being felt all over the world. Now I'll say this. It is God's plan for us to take care of each other's needs. It is God's plan for us to take care of each other's common good. And I would ask this today. Are you a liberal Christian? Are you liberal in your giving to other people's needs? Let's not have the attitude, I'm, I'm going to get all that I can. I'm going to can all that I get. And then I'm going to sit on the can. Let's not have that attitude. Boy, I, I, let's follow the model laid out in Scripture that talks about that we give and we let God take care of our needs. I'm not suggesting that you be foolish. I'm not suggesting that you not have an emergency fund that you live off of, a six-month savings plan. But I am saying that you put the needs of others ahead of yourself. Those of you in position to do so, I'd like for you to consider taking a portion of the abundance that God has given you And I would like for you to designate a portion of that back to the church's benevolence fund. Let's take care of our own. If you're listening in today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, what are you waiting for? Hell is real. Hell is hot. Heaven is sweet. And heaven is available for you if you'll just simply call on the name of Jesus. You'll put your faith in him. You'll believe in your heart and you'll confess Jesus with your mouth. Lord, help us this morning to consider our duty as Christians to take care of our own. Lord, if there is a condescending attitude toward the poor in our hearts, would you help deal with us? Show us where we're wrong. Lord, may we follow the model laid here in Acts 4 to have the church take care of the needs of the poor. Lord, some listening in this morning need help, but maybe are too proud to admit they need help. 
And Lord, for those, would you help humble them? Lord, would you help them to allow their church family to help them? And then, Lord, others listen into a sermon like this and they scoff, they mock, they roll their eyes. But, Lord, this is what you showed us in Acts 4 in a positive light. Lord, help us to be liberal in our love for each other. Help us to follow your model and your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.